Morning. My name is Luke Wu. I'm a pastor here at our church serving. And it's my pleasure to be preaching God's word for you this morning. <clears throat> Let us pray as we seek his help. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, that you do give us your word week in, week out, that you guide us with your spirit. God, help us to listen to your words with authority. Help us not to see them as good advice or suggestions or things to simply talk about or just praise over, but Lord, may that praise lead into genuine obedience. For you're not just an advisor, Lord, you are our king. Help us to listen to you as king. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, before we go into the message, I do want to highlight just one more announcement. As you can see on your bulletins, um, we do have uh, a great opportunity to hear a potential candidate uh, to be our senior pastor on May 19th. So please uh, stick around uh, after church and go to the open house that we're going to have so that congregants can meet uh, this candidate and his family as well. As you can see, there's going to be two times where you can come and see him uh, right after church at one o'clock or in a couple hours after that. So please choose which of those times you would like to come. If you want to come right after service, uh, please grab a lunch, pick it up on the way, and then bring it to the open house, and we can all have lunch together there as well. So uh, there will be more information regarding other times of gatherings and prayer meetings, but for now, please decide uh, how you want to take uh, advantage of that time. Also, please be in prayer for the committee and for this candidate as well. Well, today we're going to be looking at the last mass message on this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we can see that here, Jesus, he's concluding this Sermon on the Mount. If you remember in the beginning, uh, way back uh, when we began this series, we talked about how Jesus is saying, okay, do you remember all of these Old Testament laws and what the prophets have been saying? And he's saying, I'm not here to abolish all of that, but I'm actually here to fulfill all of the Old Testament law and prophets. And he uses that phrase to begin his sermon. I have come to fulfill the Old Testament law and the prophets. And also now in verse 12, we see Jesus using that phrase again, the Old Testament law and prophets. So that gives us a clue that now Jesus, he's wrapping up the sermon and now he's giving his final conclusive remarks. And just so that there's no surprises here this morning, probably many of you suspected uh, after reading this passage, today's message is going to be a very sobering, a very challenging uh, message. In fact, it may even be alarming for many of us. But understand that the purpose behind Jesus' words is not simply to, to scare us, uh, but it's so that we can actually be aware these potential dangers that you and I can fall into. And as sobering of a message it might be, please know that it is ultimately to save us from the destruction that Jesus talks about. And what's most important is that we're safe from such destruction. A commentator presents it this way. Imagine you're sleeping soundly in your house, but you're desperately threatened by, by these rising flood waters. And if I go to your house and I'm pounding at that door saying, wake up, get out, and I scare the heck out of you, 
and you finally see why I was knocking on your door. You're not going to be so concerned that I scared you or you were alarmed, but you're going to be thankful that you're free and you're safe from destruction. And that's what it is here. The point of Jesus' words here is not just to simply scare us, but to save us. And so let us uh, keep in uh, keep mind what the purpose and intent of this passage is. And it requires, requires for us to be very sober and to really evaluate ourselves. It requires self-evaluation in light of these words. Jesus here, he's not, he's not simply giving information to us. He's not saying, this is what it's like. You should just know this. Keep this in mind. No, what he's saying here, in light of this, evaluate yourselves. Where do you stand? When he's talking about these two roads, he's saying, which road are you actually walking on? When he's talking about the two houses, he's calling us to actually evaluate your life and see what kind of house are you building. He's not just giving, as we prayed, just helpful advice here. He's not saying, here are some good things that you should do as a Christian. And we might be tempted to think like that because in these past weeks, we've been tackling these specific areas of the Christian life. We talked about greed, talked about lust, talked about anxiety, how to pray, all of these specific things. But keep in mind, now he's concluding all of these things and saying, if you are actually living in this kingdom of God, you will be living like this. Now evaluate, are you on this narrow road or this wide road? And that's the purpose. That's what we should be doing in light of this passage. Evaluate ourselves. Where do we stand? And so to do this, let us investigate the nature of this narrow road and see what the differences are between this narrow one and the wide one. And as we do so, please, on your own, think. Look at your lives. Look down at the ground figuratively and see uh, which road you are on. Are you on the narrow road? to eternal life, on the wide road to destruction. So the three points for this morning is, number one, this narrow road requires intentionality. Intentionality. Number two, it requires sacrifice. And number three, this narrow road requires knowing Jesus. Three simple things, intentionality, sacrifice, and knowing Jesus. And we're talking about this narrow road. So, the first thing to consider is this narrow road, it requires intentionality, meaning you can't simply drift onto this narrow road. Think about what this metaphor is doing, what it's describing. The fact that it's narrow, the fact that it's small, it means it's not obviously visible to us. It requires intentionality to find it first and then to walk upon it. And when we use this analogy with our Christian lives, what it means in our relationship with Jesus is it requires intentionality on our part. It requires us to consciously decide in our hearts, okay, am I going to follow this Jesus or not? To seek him. It requires us to strive and to understand that we're not going to passively drift towards Jesus or into holiness. Now, this does not mean that your salvation is dependent on your intentionality. It's not dependent on how hard you work to find this road. The Bible clearly states that this gospel is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the free offer of the gospel. But with an offer, 
There is a decision that needs to be made. Are you going to accept this? And the way you accept this is if you're going to be intentional with your relationship with Christ. And you're going to understand the ramifications that this gospel, this salvation has. It's not news where you can simply hear and say, that's great. Yes, I have eternal life. Yes, I have forgiveness from sins. Yes, there is someone named Jesus who came and saved me. And then you can't just simply walk away from that and carrying this information with you. The nature of the message requires you to be intentional and to think, what does this mean for me now? If this is really true, what does it mean for me to live now? It requires intentionality. And just because you might have grown up with these ideas of the Christian faith, maybe you grew up in the church, maybe around you, some of your friends, they talk about Jesus, and you know here and there you pick up pieces about who this Jesus Christ is, and you even like the idea of salvation. You like the idea of having a place in heaven, but perhaps you haven't actually walked on this narrow road for yourself to see Jesus for yourself, who he is, and that requires intentionality to read for yourself what this Bible says, to hear for yourself what Jesus says to you through his spirit when you, when you commune with him in prayer, and to make that decision for yourself. Am I willing to give my life for this message? You don't drift into this. You don't simply stumble upon it. As an example, in Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas, they are on this missionary journey, and they're preaching this gospel message, the same message we hear week in and week out to these people in Thessalonica. And when they hear this message, it reads that they received it with much eagerness. Think about what that means. Like many of us, we may listen to a message on Sunday. We may go to a Bible study, and at first we receive it with much eagerness, right? Oh, that was a great teaching at community group. I had a great time on Sunday. We receive it well. But then it says that these people, having received it with eagerness, they then examined the scriptures for themselves to see if it is so. Do you see that? After having received it, after being eager about it, they see for themselves intentionally with their own eyes, reading these words, seeking God on their own, and to see how real this Jesus Christ is. Intentionality. Paul and Silas, they proclaim this message of the gospel free of charge. And yes, you can say in one sense, the people, they kind of just happened to receive it, but after the message was given, they were intentional about it. Asking questions like, okay, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? Do I really know this? Or do I just kind of pick up things here and there? I, I pick up one little thing on a Sunday, or this one friend told me about this. And no, they examined, they investigated to see if these things were true for themselves. You don't stumble onto this narrow road. You don't just drift into relationship with Jesus. In a couple of weeks, Joanna and I, my wife, uh, we're going to be going to uh, Korea so she can spend some time with her family. And 
A lot of the times, she kind of kicks me out of those gatherings. I kind of have to do things on my own. And I don't have many family left in Korea. A lot of them are all over the world, here in the States, West Coast, Brazil, not much over there. So because I'm the only one really over there, and I'm also the oldest male uh, in my generation, uh, one of the things that I have to do, the responsibilities that I have, uh, is to go back to my hometown, this country, rural village, and I have to go to my family's burial grounds. <laughs> I have to go to my family's uh, burial grounds, and I have to trim all the weeds and all the shrubbery that's all over the ground. It's one of the most grueling tasks ever. The reason why I'm sharing this is the last time I went was in 2017, a couple of years ago. And when I went that time, it had actually been about 10 years since I had gone to our family's plot of land. And in the countryside in Korea, it's not like graveyards here in the States. Here, it's neatly aligned. It's very clean. There's flowers all over the place, right? There's a road where you can actually drive into the plot of land. But in rural Korea, there is no graveyard. It's just literally scattered out amongst the wild. And it's all it's just these small portions of land. It's not a dedicated plot of ground, but it's just mixed in with nature. So I went. Now, when I went, I knew that it was going to be a little hard to find because it's been so long. But I thought, okay, if I just start out on my you know, path here, once everything kind of is visible, I feel like everything's going to come back to me, and I'm going to be able to find this plot of grand, uh, ground because I knew that it wasn't easy to find, but I thought maybe I can kind of stumble upon it. So let me show you a little bit of uh, what it looks like. This is the beginning of the road where you have to go up this hill. Okay? So it's pretty clear, right? Very clear road. There's only one of them. Now, I know somewhere down along this path, I have to make a left. There's a, there's a small, narrow path on the left. It's not the one that you can see right there, but you have to go a little bit further out. Now, I didn't know where this left was, but I thought to myself, as I'm walking along, and I'm sure I'll see it. I'm sure it'll come back to me. I went back and forth eight times, and I could not find it. And after a while, I just called my parents and say, our land is gone. Just forget it. We don't have it anymore. No longer exists. Of course, they yelled at me, talked to me about family honor and shame, and I felt shameful. So in shameful walk, I walked up again. But this time I said, you know what? I can't just walk up and down. What I did was I took a few steps, I looked to my left, and I moved the shrubbery around. I actually lift up some of the weeds. And if there was no path, I went to the next step. I took a few steps forward. I did the same thing, and I looked around. I moved things around. I was intentional. And then finally, Eureka, I found the small path. Do you see it? It's right there. It's right there. That's where the small path is. Now, 10 years, and no one was able to clear it out. If you can see, that's actually one of the tombstones of one of my family members, covered in grass. And this is not the point of the illustration, but just so you know, I did actually clear out the whole thing. It took a long time with just one little tool. But you can't stumble onto a side path like that. You can't drift onto a place like this. Why is Jesus using a metaphor of a small road? It's not obvious. You can't drift onto it. You can't stumble upon it. It requires intentionality. You might have to get on your knees. 
You might have to look around. You might have to ask yourself, okay, if this is true, this resurrection is true, if there is something after this life, then it requires me to start thinking deeply what my life has to be now. Is this Jesus real? Not only real out there, but real for you. And you have to look. And you might have to clear out some of the weeds. You might have to look intentionally. But once you do, you'll know you're on this narrow path. I'm going to have to do this in a couple of weeks, so please pray for me. (laughs) It's been another long time. Have you examined who Jesus is for yourself? You've heard it. Week in, week out. Community groups. You know things about Jesus. Have you ever decided for yourself, I am all in? Because that's what it's going to take to walk on this narrow road. Junior high school students, high school students, college students, even adults, maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you know a lot of Bible lessons. You hear your parents talk about Jesus a lot. But let me ask you, have you personally met this Jesus is and personally see him as your Lord and your Savior. That's what it means to walk on this narrow road. How much of Jesus do you know firsthand? Do you know what Jesus is about? Do you think Jesus is only concerned about your salary, your your day-to-day needs? that he's only concerned with your problems and issues. And praise God that Jesus is a loving God who does care about all of those things, but we are very much mistaken if that is his main priority in our lives. To simply give you that job, to simply give you that relationship, that's not his main purpose. Do you know what he's all about? You won't unless you intentionally seek to know him, unless, like the Thessalonians, you examine for yourselves who this Jesus is. This narrow road requires intention. Second point, this narrow road also requires sacrifice. Now, the second thing about this narrow road is that the narrow road, by nature, is difficult. It's hard. It requires sacrifice. Think about it. That's the nature of a narrow road. It's confining, right? To walk on this road, you can't carry a lot of things. It's too narrow. The King James Version uh, of this passage, it calls this narrow road the straight road. Straight, as in S-T-R-A-I-T, straight jacket. Why? Because it's restrictive. It's confining. It's difficult. You have to know what it's going to take, what's It's going to cost for you to actually walk on this road, to actually get to that final destination of everlasting life. It's going to cost you your your pride, your intelligence, your own desires. It's going to cost you your life. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. It's going to cost that. Let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, Jesus says, you must even hate your father and mother and be willing to even give up your own life for the sake of this gospel in order to follow him. That's what it's going to cost. It's narrow, it's hard, it's sacrificial. One preacher once said that you cannot get onto this narrow road unless you have gone through the turnstiles. And what does a turnstile do? There's no room to bring with you these bags, this baggage of pride, irresolution, he said. It's too narrow. There is no room for you to want to hold on to your current way of living and at the same time to be born again. Do you see the tension? You cannot hold on to the way that you've been living all this time and still receive this gift of eternal life. You cannot be born again unless you die to something. Think about what that word means to be born again. It requires you to die. It requires us to pay the price of our own lives and say, these things, these things I've been living for, these things that I've been all about, no longer do I desire these things. I desire Christ. It requires that price, that sacrifice. You can't add Jesus on top of your life. He can only replace it. There's a simple way to evaluate ourselves with this. And let me ask, if Jesus is taken out of your life, would your life look any different? If there is no more Jesus in your life, would your life look different? I'll give you the Sundays, two hours, or maybe community group. Apart from that, the way you talk, the way you spend your money, the way you decide things, the way you spend your free afternoons, the motivation behind which you love your spouse, would it look any different if I took Jesus out? That's how you know. That's how you know if you actually paid something to follow him. And what your classmates know, what your friends know, what your neighbors know, what your spouse know, what your kids know if Jesus was taken out of your life. In order to protect perhaps your relationship with him, say that to protect your time with God on the Sabbath, on Sundays, in order to dedicate that one day out of seven to worship him, to make God the priority, what sacrifices do you need to make? How is it going to be difficult for you? Is it difficult at all? Or are you trying to put two ways of living together and try to make up with this new road? There is no third road. In order to make your spiritual health the most important thing in your life, what sacrifices were you going to have to make? How are you going to have to rearrange your life? Are you going to just try to add on quiet time and devotions to everything that you've been doing already? It doesn't work. It has never worked. Why? Because the narrow road requires you to drop something. How is it going to be difficult for you? D.A. Carson, this pastor, he uses this illustration. I think it helps. And he uses this illustration to talk about it, to show, while wow, you've been watching a graveyard this whole time, <laughs> I apologize. Makes it more serious, right? Um, he gives the illustration of a cone. And the reason why he does so is because he says, a lot of us, we think our relationship with Jesus is like entering into this cone where at first, it's very easy to get inside. 
It's wide, right? The opening is very wide. So it's very easy to begin our relationship with Jesus. Wow, free offer of the gospel. I get a free spot in heaven. Jesus comes and he fixes this. He gives me this. Of course, everyone wants to enter in. The why? The opening is wide. But then what ends up happening is week to week, you come to church. Every, t- every day you start reading the Bible and you start seeing that Jesus, he's starting to take claims on your life. He's saying, that area of your life, I want that. Can you let go of that? That idol, that entertainment, that relationship, that lust problem, I want control of that. And what happens is he starts making more and more claims on you, and then how do we feel? We feel like our relationship with Christ is more confining, is more restrictive. And we start to see, wow, Jesus, why are you such a killjoy? You were so great in the beginning. But now you're making my life so much more difficult. I have to let go of these things. I have to start reading scripture. I actually have to start sharing my faith. All of these things. Why are you being such a killjoy, Jesus? And what happens over time is only a few make it. That's why the opening on the other side is so small. And that's what happens to many of us. And this is the wrong picture. Jesus is not saying this is how Christian life is. It's more like this where before you even enter the cone, you have to see that the opening is small. And in order to enter, you might have to let go of things. But what happens once you enter, once you make the sacrifice, once you give up your past life and enter this cone, you start to see your horizon being broadened. Wow, Jesus, I had no idea this is what you were planning on doing in my life. I had no idea that these are the blessings that you've been giving me. I had no idea that you are so much more than just giving me a free ticket to heaven. And you start loving Jesus. He starts getting bigger and bigger in your life. That's how it's supposed to be. It's easy to enter a wide road, but over time, we're going to drop out. Make the decision. Before you seek Jesus, are you willing to pay the sacrifice? And you know what the cost is? It's your life. But he promises to give you a better one where your life is uh, broadened out. Your horizon gets more expanded. We need to make a decision to see how we want to live. That's why he's giving these two roads And once you start entering this cone, you're going to have new affections, new taste buds. Your satisfactions, your desires are going to be met in Christ. You're not going to see Jesus as restrictive. Perhaps for some of us, we're starting to realize, wow, this following Jesus thing is going to take a lot more commitment than I thought, right? A lot more than you originally thought. And maybe you're torn because... There is a part of you that wants to follow him. You do acknowledge that there are good things about Jesus. I mean, everlasting life, right? I talked to a lot of non-Christians, and not one of them reject Jesus. Actually, a lot of them say, yes, it would be good for our family to start attending church. It would be good for our kids. They need some good teaching in their life. I know many of us, of, of course, it would be good for Jesus to fix this problem in my life. Of course, welcome, Jesus. That's how we are. And so we know there are good things about him, but we're torn because we know at the same time, there's more to it than that. 
that he is going to start taking claims on your life. And because of that dichotomy, we're afraid to take that step. We're afraid to take that step of faith and say, okay, Jesus, I'm all in. You know what it's like? In, in Mere Christianity, it's a book that C.S. Lewis wrote. He gets this experience. When he was a young boy, he had a very aching toothache. And now he couldn't sleep at night because of this toothache. And so he knew that in order to actually be able to sleep and to deaden the pain, he needed to take an aspirin. So he knew he could just simply ask his mom, can I have some aspirin so I could go to sleep? But he didn't ask his mom. He actually just suffered throughout the night and just couldn't sleep at all. And he explains why he didn't ask his mom. And he says because he knows that if he asked his mom, she would, of course, give him the aspirin. But he says, I also know that the next morning, she would take me to the dentist. And knowing that prevented him from asking for this aspirin. Let's stop here for a second. He didn't want to go to the dentist. Like many of us, I apologize for the dentists in this congregation. We don't want to see you. But get, get, the, get the point. The point is, he knows there's something else coming. He knows that the dentist is going to start looking around to see if you have plaque and gingivitis and see if you have gum disease. Maybe places where you don't feel any pain. And you want to say, no, I only feel pain here. Just deal with this. But the dentist, he's going to say, actually, you have some issues here. You're going to have some issues here. And he wants to permanently fix all of your problems. But because you know what it's going to take, you don't even take the aspirin. That's like many of us. We're not ready to take that step of faith because we know following Jesus is going to require a lot more than just simply taking an aspirin. We acknowledge the toothache in our lives, right? Especially when life gets difficult, you do need something more than this. You do need something more than money, something more than just a white picket fence. You acknowledge that. You acknowledge the toothache. You're ready to take the aspirin, but you're not ready to go to the dentist because Jesus says it's going to take a lot more than just saying, yes, I believe. Cries your life. We want the relief from the pain. We want the good things. We want to him, for him to heal a sickness, to give us a raise at work, to help us get into college, to help us with a certain issue in our lives. But it also means we're going to have to go to the dentist. He's going to have to do surgery in our hearts, take out some of these idols. He's going to have to drill into your pride, your desire for control, your intellect, your desire for you to sit on the throne of your lives. And so Lewis, he actually says this. He says, I could not get what I wanted out of my mother without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from the pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they were going to start fiddling with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. Do you see? You might be wanting aspirin just to deaden a certain toothache of your life, but that's all you want. But see, there's so much more to that. It's going to cost us our lives. Why? Because Jesus is going to do an x-ray, take out the cavities and the dangers, the idols of our lives, and he's going to set our hearts straight permanently. The commentator says this, God's way is not spacious. This road, it is confining. Poverty of spirit, it's not easy. Prayer, it's not easy. 
Righteousness is not easy. Being transformed into having these God-centered attitudes, it's not easy. In fact, they're impossible apart from God's grace. They are alien to much of what is in us, which cries out to be heard. And therefore, there needs to be a realignment, to be a genuine conversion. He says there's going to be no room for you to set your opinion against God's. No room for you to set your own goals apart from God. But to that, may I add, as you walk, you're going to see your horizon get larger. You're going to have new affections. You're going to love God more. You're going to be satisfied. You're never going to turn back. It requires sacrifice. Finally, the third point. The narrow road requires knowing Jesus. Requires knowing him. And this might sound very obvious, right? Of course, you have to know Jesus to be a Christian. But I want to say this in comparison and in distinction with knowing about Jesus. There is a difference. A difference in knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. And I want to make that distinction. Why? Because Jesus, he makes a distinction of two kinds of people here. The two kinds of people that he warns against. Now, you would assume that Jesus, he will kind of warn us against all of these evil people out there, outside of the church, these unrighteous people. But the two kinds of people he condemns and he warns us against are people who are actually in the church. You know what those two peoples are? The first one are the ones who are within the church who claim that they know Jesus because they do great things for him. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is one of the most sobering, most alarming passages of Scripture. And it demands us to self-evaluate. Look at the kinds of people Jesus rejects. Let's see what's going on. See, they're calling Jesus, Lord, Lord. And what that tells us is they're making the right confession. You see, to call somebody Lord, that just means master or teacher or rabbi. But if you look at the Old Testament, the way that they're using this phrase, Lord, Lord, to repeat it, you're calling him God. You're calling him Son of God. It's what Peter called Jesus, Son of God, the Messiah. So they're making the right confession. They're saying the right things. They have the right confession. They're also saying, look at all of the things that we've done in your name. We prophesied in your name. We, we cast out demons in your name. And so they do all of these great things, and they are legitimate things. They've done great things for Jesus. Now consider these kinds of people. Their confession is legitimate. The confession of who Jesus is, Son of God. Their acts of service are legitimate. They've done many things that benefit God's kingdom. And yet Jesus still says, I never knew you. Depart from me. The sobering warning is that aside from all of these great things, are you actually obeying Jesus in the areas of your life that he's calling you to obey? That's the question. Because for every single person, there are specific things that Jesus is calling you to do. 
and personally challenging you to change specific sins that you are struggling with. For some of us, he might be asking and challenging us to seriously take this sharing of the gospel, to actually take that step and share this gospel with that neighbor, with that coworker. For some of us, he might be calling you to reorganize, rearrange your life to put him first. For some of us, it might be for you to pack up your bags and go on missions. What, it is, what is it for you? That's what he's talking about. And we can't just ignore these specific challenges, specific commands and say, but God, I'm doing all of these other great things. Say that Jesus is calling you to take him seriously. You can't say, well, I'm serving in this ministry. You can't simply say, God, I brought thousands of people to Christ. I led revivals. I planted churches. But what if he's not calling you to do that right now in your life, in your situation? What if he's calling you to lay down your pride? What is he calling you specifically? And that's the emphasis here. Look at this illustration. He says there's two men building a house for themselves. One builds his house on sand while the other builds his on the rock. Now think with me where the comparison lies. Where is Jesus making the comparison? It's not the house itself, right? The two houses, they look the same. The exterior, the interior, the decorations, the material of the house, they're exactly the same. What's the difference? What's the point of comparison? The foundation. These two builders, they're both doing great things for God. It looks good. But when the storms come and the flood rises and the rain and wind beats the house, the question is, what's your foundation? And if your foundation is on the sand, great was the fall of that house. So the illustration is not about what great things, quote-unquote, you can do for Jesus. Prophesying in his name, casting out demons for him. What it's about is when the storms actually come into your life and it calls you to be faithful, to hold fast to Jesus' words, will you actually do what Jesus commands you to do in Faith. Actually step out in faith and obey, even when it seems difficult. Even when it doesn't make sense, even, even when it's going to cost you, then are you willing to step out in faith? You can't simply say, but look at all these great things and ignore the very things that he's calling you to do in your life in this moment. How are you going to obey, not generally, but how are you going to obey when the storms come? That's the question. It may not be for you to sell all your belongings and go on missions. For, for some of us, it might. It doesn't mean you have to disciple thousands of people in your lifetime. For some, it might. Maybe for some of us, it does require for you to rearrange your lifestyle, maybe, so that Jesus can come first before certain activities and obligations. Maybe it means for you to start taking community groups seriously, not attending just because you have a free night, but because you actually value the people in your church. It actually means to take that step and say, hey, neighbor, you know I'm a Christian. Can I share with you what I believe? Instead of praying that you'll somehow drift and stumble onto him saying, hey, I really want to know about Jesus. Can you tell me? Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this cheap grace. It's a dangerous place to be. 
to assume that grace will always be there for you, and you don't really have to take seriously what Jesus says. What is Jesus calling you to step out in faith towards? What is Jesus specifically at this time in your life with your specific situation and with your challenges and with your struggles right now, what is he asking you to do? In another parallel count, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? There's a story of Charles Blondin, and he's a very famous French tightrope walker. And his greatest fame came in June of 1859. He became the first person to walk across a tightrope above the Niagara Falls, 1,100 feet. And the rope was 160 feet above the falls. And he did it several times. And when he first walked across, he yelled, I'm going to do it again. And he did it again. He did it on stilts even. He did it on a bicycle. He even did it blindfolded. One time he even carried a stove and he cooked an omelet on the middle of this rope. Now, after his fame increased, once in 1860, a royal party from London came to see this spectacular feat. And what he did was, Blondin, he actually took a wheelbarrow and he walked across the tightrope. And then after that, he placed a sack of potatoes in the wheelbarrow and he went back to the other side. Now, afterwards, he yelled to the crowds, do you believe I can do the same thing with a person on this wheelbarrow? They're all like, yes! You're the greatest. You're Charles Blondin. And even the royal family were getting excited. So he went to the Duke Duke of Newcastle, and he goes, do you believe I can carry a person across in this wheelbarrow? It's like, yes. And he goes, great. Hop in. (laughs) And he says, no. After being disappointed, he goes to the crowd, does anyone trust me and believe that I can actually carry a person across this tightrope? They're like, yes. Who wants to get in? Quiet. An elderly woman steps forward, and she places herself in the wheelbarrow, and he takes her across safely. That woman was his mother. If you want to step out in faith, you have to know who Jesus is. If you don't know him, you're not going to be able to step out in faith. If you don't trust him, if you don't know him for yourself, to actually be intentional and see what his voice sounds like, you'll never take that step. The Father's will is not simply admired or discussed or praised or debated. It is done. It is not theologically analyzed nor congratulated for its high ethical tones. It is done, D.A. Carson writes. So here's a very clear distinction for us. Do you know about Jesus? Do you know Jesus? The false prophets, they knew about Jesus. They said all the theologically right things. But you know what? Even the demons know all the theologically right things. James chapter 2 says, You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. But it's not just about knowing about Jesus, but knowing him personally? Do you have a personal, ongoing relationship with him? Let me ask you, are there things that only you and Jesus know about? Are there things that you know about Jesus, are the same? Are they the same things that you knew when you first had a relationship with him, that he's just simply son of God and he died for your sins and he gives you a place in heaven? Is that all you know about him? There's so much more. Let me end with this illustration. 
John MacArthur is a well-known pastor, and when he first pastored his church, he said that he was going to start to preach from the New Testament. And he said, I'm going to preach on every single verse from here on out. It took him 42 years to do it. He actually recently finished it. But when he first began this first message, he shared this illustration to get this point across. He says, once there was an actor, and there was this gathering, and this actor was invited to this gathering to be part of the show, and he would tell the audience, I will recite anything you want me to recite. And no one suggested anything. But in the back, an old pastor, this old gentleman, he stood up and he asked him to recite the 23rd Psalm. That Psalm is that famous one that goes, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and so forth. And this actor, he was a little surprised, but he did say that he would recite anything that they wanted. So he did because he happened to know the Psalm. So he recited the 23rd Psalm with complete eloquence, masterfully interpreted it. His diction was beautiful. And after he was done, there was this spontaneous applause throughout the whole entire room. And this actor, he wanted to get back at this old gentleman, this old pastor. And he says, now, sir, I'd like to hear you recite it. And this old gentleman, he hadn't bargained for that, but because of his love for Christ, he stood up and he repeated the 23rd Psalm. His voice cracked. His voice broke. It wasn't very beautiful. His interpretation was kind of off. His emphasis was all over the place. And when he got done, there was no applause. But there was also no dry eye in that room. The actor, he sensed his own emotion, and he stood up and said, Ladies and gentlemen, I reached your eyes and I reached your ears, but he has reached your heart. And the difference is this. I know the psalm. He knows the shepherd. Brothers and sisters, perhaps you in this room, you know a lot about what Jesus says. Perhaps you've been doing a lot for Jesus. Perhaps you can recite a lot of this Bible, and you may know a lot of things, but can I ask you, do you know the shepherd? Are you on this narrow road? Let's pray.